Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom Fellowship, shalom everyone. <laughs> Welcome. I hope you had a beautiful Pesach. Some of our Jewish members outside of Israel are still celebrating Passover today. Some of our Christian friends are celebrating Easter today. What a coincidence. And so a lot of our friends are going to be catching this session tomorrow. But here we are, uh, live from the mountains of Judea, live from the land of Israel. Um, Passover here was marvelous. So many people were able to finally visit. It's like Corona is like opened up now in Israel. And so many friends from all over the land. I haven't been able to see some of these people in more than a year. And they came to visit us. And uh, one of Ari's friends from Texas, um, he hadn't been here for a few years. And, um, you know, we talk about it all the time that if you make a little bit of progress consistently over time, incremental progress, you might eventually realize full transformation. And so the Arugot farm a few years ago had a few trees and some unfinished buildings, but you come here today and it's like something out of a, out of a legend. And so he came out this time and he was absolutely blown away at what we've built at the edge of the desert. And he told me such a funny joke. <laughs> so I want to tell you the joke he told me. He said a farmer from Texas came to Israel for the first time. And after traveling around a week, he couldn't believe how small Israel was. And he met an Israeli farmer and the Israeli farmer asked him, well, tell me how big is your farm back in Texas? And the Texan said, listen, you can't even imagine. There's nothing like what I have in your country. I mean, my farm is so big. So the Israeli said, well, come on, you know, let me, how big is it? So the Texan said, well, let me put it this way. I wake up in the morning and as the sun rises, I start driving my tractor. And by the end of the whole day, just as the sun is finally going down, I get to the other side of my field. And the Israeli said, oh, yes, I know, I know. I had a tractor like that once too. <laughs> so I just, it's just such a fun story of like the combination of Texans in Israel and Judea and farmers. I just love that joke. And so anyway, after just a year of isolation, uh, we were finally able to see friends all over Israel. My family got together for the Passover Seder. My parents, my two brothers, 17 grandchildren. You know, most of the time I need to be with Tehillah's family or maybe my other brothers need to be with their in-laws. I mean, I don't ever remember my whole family being together and I don't even remember in how long. And after a year of really not being able to see almost anyone, it was just such a time to be together and to appreciate our togetherness. It's like in a way that I've never appreciated it before. And so it's like forces beyond our control are separating us, they're isolating us, they're dividing us. And the spiritual answer to that is togetherness. And that thread underlies really the entire Bible, from Cain and Abel to Joseph and his brothers to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah splitting apart. It's like with unity comes blessing and with division comes curse. And how beautiful that in this fellowship, we can manifest this new unity around the world centered in the land of Israel in these times and so let's just start with a prayer together. It's like such an opportunity to seize this really, for me, it's like once in a lifetime, once in an ever that so many believers and seekers and people from so many backgrounds can come together with one heart and just have a moment of prayer together. And so here it is from the land of Israel, straight up to Hashem. Hashem, master of the world, here we are, your fellowship together. Hundreds of hearts from all over the world are together. Some are here now live. Some soon to tune in this week. Some soon to tune in in the distant future, joining this move, aligning with your will and your promise for Israel. So here we are calling out to you, lifting our eyes and our hearts toward you. We carve out and dedicate this time of learning every week to you. We're journeying into this new season, and we want to walk with you as our guide and the Torah as our map. We see the world is changing fast and we want to align our lives with your will and be guided to where you want us to go. And may you guide us all to a new day in a new rebuilt Jerusalem. Amen. Whew. All right. So, you know, for the new members of the fellowship, there's nothing like this anywhere else in the land of Israel, anywhere else in the world for that matter. Um, there's just so many people from so many backgrounds and all of us come together, some live, some tune in religiously after the live sessions because of the time differences. And all of us love the Torah. 
We love the Bible. We love the wisdom of the prophets. And all of us feel a deep connection to this land, to the land of Israel. And all of us are also a part of a greater mission here. And we're building the deepest settlement in the mountains of Judea together. In the mountains where King David assembled his army of mighty men, we're building a center to invite every believer and every seeker from every background to come to the mountains to learn Torah in the land of Israel. It's like a place overlooking Jerusalem that will be a true house of prayer for all nations. And so before we get deep into the learning, I just want to share this one update from our mountain. I made this video last night right after Passover. And our fellowship meets virtually online right now, but we are building something very real. It's not virtual at all. It's bricks. It's going to last. <laughs> it's like something that is going to stand in the land of Israel for generations to come. It's going to stand when Mashiach arrives. It is just um, something to marvel at, to restore not only the physical land of Israel, but to breathe the spirit of King David into the mountains of Judea again. And so here's a short clip and I know you're just going to love this. So check this out. Hey, Fellowship, it's Saturday night. Passover is over. And I wanted to share with you something amazing that happened right before Passover. I'm talking about like just a day before the holiday. Do you see that? That's our house of prayer. It's lit up on the outside. It's lit up on the inside. It's just unbelievable. Three members from our fellowship, spontaneously and independently, each one gave a gift and they have facilitated our house of prayer coming to life. We talk about the light of redemption. Talk about the light of Passover. Talk about the light of the new year and the darkness. And then right behind me, our house of prayer is lit up. You have to see it on the inside. On the inside, it looks like something out of a legend. <laughs> it looks like something that you would see, I don't know, in another lifetime in the Bible. Do you see the chandelier? I think it's a few hundred years old, two or three hundred years old from Morocco, brought in from a synagogue there, handmade, and now we have lights all around our house of prayer. And it's like right in this time in history that things are somewhat dark, our fellowship is lighting it up. And I just wanted you to see that because I don't know any other place like this anywhere in the world. Definitely not in the mountains of King David and in the mountains of Judea. And somehow our fellowship, independently, one person is inspired, another family is inspired. And look at what we've done together. Our house of prayer is now a light to the nations. And so that is our Passover gift to the fellowship to see what this fellowship has created in the world. And we're going to keep on spreading the light. <laughs> I, I kid you not. When people come into the house of prayer now in the evening time, some people just burst out crying because it's like something from a dream that's manifesting in the world. And you know, in the slideshow, for those of you that come on a little bit early, you see the process that was just built like stone after stone, slowly but surely being built. And every day we just keep on building like another tree, another stone, another light. And so we're manifesting our highest ideals and dreams into the land of Israel. It's like everything that this fellowship represents. And as we plugged our house of prayer into the electrical infrastructure of the state of Israel, you know, I heard someone say the same week that our goal in spiritual living is to be a light bulb. <laughs> and I thought that was a really cool way of looking at things. Like the goal is to stay screwed in. It's like, you know, we want to be plugged into the source and then let the light shine through us. And I was like, wow, just as we like plugged in the light to the, to the house of prayer, the light just started shining through that. Like what a beautiful Torah to that. 
It's like every mitzvah we do, we screw in a little tighter. We like get a little bit more juice. And if we miss the mark, maybe we loosen the hold a little bit. When we do tshuva, it's like we clean off the glass bulb and allow the light to shine brighter and clearer through us. Because in that analogy, there's like an interesting question. It's like, are we the transparent bulb that the light shines through? Or are we the light that shines through? And I think the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> and that's what this house of prayer is. It's just like a light that's just shining. And the truth is with my phone, you don't really capture its full beauty of, of how marvelous it is at nighttime from the outside. It's too dark and my phone isn't sophisticated enough to really capture how awesome it looks. It's just marvelous. But the, um, the more connected we are to our source, the more plugged in we are, the more light we'll have in our lives. And the more light we'll be able to radiate to the people around us. And what is the greatest way or one of the greatest ways to tap into the source? How do we plug into that? It's studying godly wisdom, the Torah, his word, his ways, and then bringing that higher wisdom down into our life. It's like a supercharge. And with that, I want to invite Arya Bramowitz live from the mountain to share uh, some of the light of Passover that we've experienced here in the land of Israel. So charge us up, Arya. You got it. Guys, hello everybody, shalom, shalom. First of all, it's such a joy to be here with you because I didn't think it was going to happen. Serious technical difficulties, terrible allergy attack. Here I am at the farm, and I actually, I want to show you guys what it looks like right now. If you can see it, that's the house of prayer right now from the outside, which I wanted you to see because Jeremy just showed you from the inside. And, uh, and I'm just so excited to be with you because it feels like a long time since we've been together. And, um, and I just want to start off because Jeremy started with a joke and I don't usually tell jokes, but I can't let him show me up. So here's the joke I want to start with. What did Ray Charles, you know, the blind musician, Ray Charles, what did he say when they gave him a piece of matzah? Who wrote this stuff? I can't tell if you're laughing, but I'm laughing. I love that joke. I tell it every single Pesach. Anyways, I, I'm going to dive in because Jeremy's going to cut me off because I'm going to go over time. So I just want to start talking to you because so much has happened since we've been together. Um, there were a number of days of intensive cleaning, both in our homes and in our hearts. Uh, there was a lot of suspense and anticipation building up to the Seder, big time for me. And, and for me also working to rid my heart of the chamet, of expectation, uh, of praying to embark on a uh, a Seder of liberation from the need to control things and just being able to surrender to Hashem's will. That was my goal for the Seder, and that was a Seder of true redemption. And indeed, it was really a beautiful Seder for me. Uh, Shana, Dvash, and I went to my sister Miriam and my brother-in-law Aaron's house in Modi'in. And uh, yes, it's interesting that my sister and brother-in-law share the names of Moses' brother and sister, which was particularly entertaining at the Seder. And, uh, and just sitting there was already a liberation. My, un my younger sister, Yael, she was there with her husband, Adam. She's eight months pregnant. We've been praying for this. And my mother and father were there alive and healthy as well. And after a year like we had, it's not a foregone conclusion that they're going to be alive and healthy and well. And so it, just, it was a simple Seder, but it was a beautiful Seder. Everyone was involved. Everyone was happy. And there was an air of uh, gratitude that just permeated the whole Seder. Anyways, we then embarked on Chol HaMoed, which are the intermediary days of the holiday. It's almost like a hybrid holiday, which is uh, very special and joyous, especially in Israel. The whole country is in an elevated state. Uh, even our morning prayers, which are filled with the famous Hallel prayer, of gratitude and song and joy and dance. If you do it right, it's filled with dance. We don't, do, we don't put on our tefillin, our phylacteries, because the holiness of the holiday itself is the crown of splendor that's on our heads. So the farm was packed with people who had flocked there from around the country. As Jeremy said, I have friends from Texas I haven't seen forever. We didn't advertise it. There were no promotions or programming. Word of mouth is a very powerful thing in Israel. And people simply wanted to walk around and experience the, the sanctity and the beauty of what Hashem is bringing into the world on our mountain. And, and to live here, well, I'll never know why I was granted this privilege, this honor. And I just try to be a worthy host and custodian of this sacred place. So from morning to night, our house was filled with family and friends 
and soon to be friends that I didn't even know yet. And my holy wife, Shana, oh my goodness. She was so gracious and welcoming and tireless in her hospitality. While I aspire to be like my forefather, Abraham, my Sarah. It was, I was just so grateful. It was so beautiful. So now here's the thing. If I had to say one theme that this Pesach was all about for me personally, it was about Mashiach. Everything that happened to me, that happened in the world constantly throughout the day, it was all run through the prism of Mashiach. It wasn't like an, an effort that I made or a desire that I had. It wasn't intentional. It was just that I felt like Mashiach was in the air. And, and I was comforted, actually, when I opened up to friends and family about it and found out that I was far from being alone. I was surprised to see how many people have become consumed with the feeling of Mashiach. So it was beautiful. It was uplifting. It was meaningful. And the whole Mashiach thing really added a, a potency, a dimension that made everything feel more intentional and meaningful and orchestrated. And uh, a culmination of this great holiday of redemption took place last night as people throughout the land of Israel in the final ebbing hours of the holiday celebrate a mystical type of Seder that I don't think anybody really understands. And it's called Seudat Mashiach, the feast of Mashiach. Jeremy was there with his kids around my table, and it was just so beautiful. So the general idea of this powerful moment is that the seventh day of Passover marks the splitting of the sea, that great moment when the nation of Israel was cornered and helpless and facing the sea. And they looked back and they saw the entirety of the Egyptian army with all of its chariots and its might closing in on them. And then in an act of faith, which we remember and seek to emulate, we spoke about this before, Nachshon ben Aminadab, that prince from the tribe of Judah, he took those faithful steps first up to his waist, then to his chest, then to his neck, then past his nose. And right when the water was, would drown him, when he would drown, at that final moment, when he did everything he could within his power, God performed the entirety of the miracle and the waters parted. That happened on the seventh day of Pesach. So while the first Seder is marking the redemption from Egypt in the past, this final Seder, the, it had four cups of wine, it was like a Seder, is marking the final messianic redemption of the future for which we're waiting. May it be soon in our days. And, uh, and that's really what I want to discuss with you for the rest of my time today. And Jeremy, I'm going to try to, to go fast here, but I need to get this out. So I, I want to discuss with the time that we're in right now, because Pesach doesn't stand alone. It did not really end last night. Pesach is the beginning of a process of redemption that starts with Pesach, but culminates in Shavuot, in the receiving of the Torah 49 days later. And so with Pesach, the countdown begins, or the count up for that matter, the count up to the completion of our redemption to the giving of the Torah. You see, Pesach is called Chag HaCherut, the holiday of freedom, because on this day, we were liberated from foreign rule and bondage. But it's not our mission to be a free nation. It's our mission to be a holy nation. And the two are integrally connected. For without the first, we could not achieve the second, which is why we count the days between the two. So we don't forget for a moment the critical connection between the first and the second. So let me explain further with a, uh, a brief, simplified history. The state of Israel was founded by Theodore Herzl when he saw the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, who was a high-ranking Jewish artillery officer in the French army who was falsely accused of treason and paraded through the streets as he was sent off to exile with the crowd screaming and chanting hatred and distrust of the Jews as treasonous outsiders. And Herzl, who was not a religious guy at all, a man who actually believed in assimilation as a value, saw all of this and said to himself, when is all of this going to end? No matter how patriotic and loyal we are, we are never truly accepted. Why is this happening? That's what he asked himself. And what was his conclusion? Because we do not have our own land. If we, the Jewish people, had a country like other people, then we could assimilate and be accepted like everyone else. And so the state of Israel, in many ways, was founded in order to be a nation like all others. But while that was perhaps Theodore Herzl's understanding, 
He was clearly used by God as an instrument for a greater and much loftier mission, far beyond what he could possibly understand himself. And this is the way Mashiach always comes. This is the way Mashiach comes. We've discussed this before in the past, but it's critical. I bring it up right now. Mashiach was descended from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters, which resulted from with the birth of Moab, which means literally from the father. Now, our sages tell us that Lot's daughters mistakenly thought that all of mankind was wiped out along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so with holy intentions, they sought to perpetuate all of mankind. It was with one of the gravest cardinal sins, incest. But their intentions were holy. And who was descended from Moab? Ruth, the great-grandmother of King David. And who else was Mashiach descended from? The illicit relationship between Yehuda, Judah, and Tamar. Tamar was promised Yehuda's son to perpetuate her dead husband's name, and she was not given to him as a husband to perform this act of kindness called Yibu. It was an act of kindness, and so she dressed up as a prostitute and seduced Yehuda. Prostitution. And who is descended from this seemingly depraved act? Boaz, the great-grandfather of King David. So there are many other examples, but the point is that the flowering of redemption takes place through the darkest and most mysterious of means. But more important than the means were the holy intentions behind them. And just as Mashiach, uh, all that went into Mashiach had noble intentions, so did Herzl and the secular founders of the state of Israel. They were really secular. They were trying to do what they believed was best for the Jewish people. And so while Herzl sought to establish a state like all others, a vehicle for assimilation, what he was really doing was creating a vehicle for sanctification. Now, I believe that the initial foundation of the state of Israel was what Ezekiel discussed in chapter 37, Yechezkel in 37, in which he saw a valley of dry bones. And he prophesied to the bones and they began to rise and the sinews and the tendons and the ligaments and the flesh returned and they stood up. Yet there was no breath in them. That, my friends, was the establishment of the state of Israel in which God took the starved and defeated bones of Israel from the gas chambers of Auschwitz and brought us, our physical bodies, to the land of Israel. He brought our bodies together back in our land. So now what's left? What awaits us? I encourage you to go inside and read the whole thing in Yechezkel 37, but it culminates in verse 14. And I shall put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, said Hashem. What awaits us is God filling us with his spirit, removing our hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. That's what's already begun happening before our eyes. That's what we're doing here together right now in this fellowship. That is the process which has already begun, which Mashiach will complete, will bring it to full culmination. Now, here's the thing. And open your hearts here. One of the foundation principle of being a Jew, the foundation of faith collected and codified by Maimonides is the unwavering belief in Mashiach. So, okay, you guys have heard me sing before. I know my voice is not angelic, but it's from my heart. So I want to sing it to you. Anima be'emuna shalema. Beviata Mashiach Anima Amin Veafalpi Shayit Maamea in Kose Aha Kelo Aha Kelo Behol Yom Shavo Behol Yom Shayavo. So, what do those words mean that I tried to sing to you? It means I believe with a perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. And even if he tarries, and even if he seems delayed, I will wait for him every day for his arrival. Now, a rabbi of mine took these words and with one teaching changed my whole life. He said that we should be open to reading those words differently. But for that, you need to know the Hebrew. He said that the word achakeh does not just mean to wait, but it comes from chikui, which means to emulate, to be like someone. He says that we should read this principle of faith as follows. I believe with the perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. And even if he tarries, even if he seems delayed, I will nonetheless emulate him to seek to be like him, 
every day until his arrival. And this teaching may have been one of the most empowering teachings of my life and my journey with Jeremy and everything we've done. Because rather than sitting and waiting and praying for the arrival of Mashiach, we should seek to do what Mashiach will do. We should fill ourselves with words of wisdom and understanding, and we should seek to bring peace to the world and love to the world, and we should seek to ingather the exiles, and we should seek to make the, the, the mountains of Judea blossom, and we should seek to be a light unto the nation. The slight change in this one word changes everything. It transforms us from being passive to active. It empowers us to step forward in faith, to follow the lead of Nachshon ben Aminadav, to do everything in our power to bring Mashiach. And then, when we give it our all, then Hashem will step in and bring Mashiach and redemption in its entirety. But we need to do our part first. I was thinking an analogy. It's almost like my young daughter, Dvash. She's 13 and a half months old, the light of my life. And let's say she gets a little bit older. Please, God, she'll get older soon. And, uh, and she one day she spends hours drawing a picture for me with all of her hearts. She'd want nothing more than to give her Abba a picture that she put it all into. And to me, it wouldn't matter at all if her picture was nonsensical scribbles. To me, when that day comes, please God, I would treasure those scribbles so much that I would frame it and value it forever. Hashem, we're here, your children who love you, and we're trying our best to come close to you and to cleave to you, to express our love to you through our words and our hearts, our souls and all of our possessions. Even if we're making mistakes, even if we're mistaken, even if we don't understand, you see our hearts and you see our intentions. We know, Hashem, that all of our efforts, however great they are, are nothing but scribbles before you. But those scribbles are from the depths of our hearts. Accept them, Hashem, as our love offering. Accept them as our greatest effort to hasten the coming of Mashiach, the coming of redemption, when knowledge of you will cover the earth as water covers the sea. Amen. Thank you, my friends. Please stay in touch. The words of encouragement and love you sent me after the last session together were unbelievable. They really, really strengthened me. And we need to stay close and we need to strengthen each other in the great days ahead. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Back to you. Thank you, Ari. That was absolutely beautiful. I'm just so grateful that we're on this mission together and how awesome that somehow we've just building this center, building this fellowship together. It's just such a marvelous thing to do in the world in these days. And so now that Passover is behind us and our eyes are already looking toward the future of Shavuot. Um, it's like Passover is the first of three holidays, the three pilgrimages, the Shalosh de Regalim. There's Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And Passover is the first. It's like the, it's like the, the gates are open and the horses start running. But there's a particular path from Passover to Shavuot. There's a pattern and there's a map that we're supposed to walk. And the first thing we see is that as soon as Passover, the first day of Passover is over, we're already on a new mitzvah. And that's the mitzvah to count the Omer. And we count the days from Passover to Shavuot, from the liberation of Egypt, to the revelation at Mount Sinai. It's like interconnecting those two events. And we track the days, we keep count. And it's, it's like what Ari said, it's not like a countdown, it's a count up. <laughs> 49 days, seven weeks. So seven days of Passover, then there's seven, seven, seven weeks. And we count up to Shavuot. Look in Leviticus chapter 23, here's the mitzvah. You shall count for yourselves from the morrow of the Sabbath, from the day when you bring the Omer of the waving, seven complete weeks, until the morrow of the seventh week you shall count, 50 days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to Hashem. And so, like, what is this counting from the day after the Sabbath of the, the holiday of Passover? It's like, why is the first thing we are commanded to do as a free people, liberated from Egypt, is... To start counting? Like, why? What is that about? And, you know, preparing for our journey to the land of Israel, somehow that counting is like a fundamental step in that spiritual path. And so that's what this session is going to be dedicated to. But for that, 
back by popular demand, we're going to bring Tehillah with us <laughs> to bring us the foundations of this remarkable practice and the prophetic reality encoded in the Torah for our times. Um, so Tehillah, hey guys. you take it from here. Sorry, it's been such a long time. Um, we've been through a crazy few weeks. Our kids have been in quarantine back to back nonstop. So between trying to manage the house and get ready for Pesach, it's been a little bit nuts, but I'm so happy to be back with everyone. Um, so we've just finished uh, Pesach and started counting the Omer. In the Omer, we count, we count seven weeks, 49 days between Pesach and Shavuot. And it's kind of a funny mitzvah. Like every night you say the blessing and then you count. You count, well, today is the fifth day of the Omer. Today is the sixth day of the Omer. And then you're done. Um, so, so it's kind of like an unusual mitzvah. You just have to say this sentence and you're done. And I discovered a really interesting midrash on this. Um, uh, by, in Vayikra Rabbah, it's a very old compilation of ancient traditions passed down on the book of Vayikra, uh, the book of Leviticus. And it says, never should the commandment of the Omer be trivial in your eyes, because through the counting of the Omer, Avraham merited to inherit the land of Canaan, because it says, I will give the land to you and your children. Hashem says, I will give the land to you and your children so that you keep my covenant. And what is the covenant, asked the Medrash? The commandment of the Omer. So it's a really interesting and cryptic tradition. It starts out by saying that the Omer should never be trivial in your eyes. I'm going to share with you guys my dirty little secret. I'm 38 and I have never managed to complete all of the Omer without missing one. And what's even worse and even more embarrassing is that I usually miss it like on the second or third night. Like I'm not ever even, I haven't even ever gotten close to finishing 49 days. I'm so bad at this mitzvah. It's like my very worst mitzvah. It's like a mitzvah that's hard. It's almost like it's hard in its easiness. It's like counting, give me a break. Give me Pesach where I can scrub the house clean for two weeks. I'm all in. Counting, it's like, so simple and small that it can just slip your mind. You can just forget about it. So this year I'm trying so hard not to mess up. I have an app. I joined a WhatsApp reminder group. Ari and Shana are reminding me every day. My grandmother, my Bubby, even offered me $200 if I finish if I finish counting the Elmer. Thank you, Bubby. So, you know, I'm really, really doing my best to make it to the end. The Midrash seems to anticipate and know how hard it is to stick with the Omer and says, Make sure not to think that you're doing something small. This is something really important. But what's interesting is that then that tradition connects the Omer to inheriting the land of Israel, which seems kind of funny. Like, how is that connected? Counting the days between, you know, counting the days between leaving Egypt and Shavuot, receiving the Torah. How is that related to inheriting the land of Israel? The Midrash says that the children of Abraham will inherit the land of Canaan because of the Omer. How is that connected? What does that have to do with inheriting the land? So there was um, there was this wonderful, special rabbi who passed away last week, Rabbi Ronen Neuvert. Um, Jeremy and I had the honor and the pleasure of uh, of knowing him personally. He was only 50 years old, um, and he did so much in Israel to try to you know, make Judaism accessible to people who wouldn't normally be connected to Judaism. Wonderful person. We got to spend Shabbat with him a few years ago, and he pointed out something really interesting. He said, both holidays that relate to our modern redemption here in the land of Israel come out during the Omer. We have Yom Atzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day that comes out during the Omer, and Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day that celebrates when we liberated Judea, Samaria, and our holy places, um, our holy cities um, during the Six-Day War. And it's not like anyone consciously thought to put those days during the Omer, they had historical reasons. It, it was, it was, it, those were significant dates historically, and no one was trying to put them in the Omer, but it's as if in the prophetic tradition passed down from generation to generation, there was, there was like this, this intuition, this knowing that somehow there's going to be a connection between the Omer and the redemption and inheritance specifically of the land of Israel. So to me, this would seem to say that there's some kind of like an internal process that we're supposed to be going through in between Pesach and Shavuot that's in some way 
um, meant to facilitate or uh, symbolize this process, um, be symbolized in this process of counting. So what's happening here? I was thinking, I, you know, I heard this story um, and I share this, I share this um, with our family on Pesach. I heard this story that really inspired me. Um, in the Kavno ghetto during the Holocaust, things were getting so bad for the Jews. They were all you know, put into this ghetto. There's no food. And, and you know, the, 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 the noose, as it were, of the Nazis was you know, tightening. And one day during the prayer in the synagogue, you know, every morning, we, one of the blessings we say is, blessed are you, Hashem, that didn't make, a, that didn't make me a slave. And the prayer leader gets to that blessing that we say every morning. And he says, you know, Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech haolam. And he gets stuck. He can't get the words out. He starts to cry. He can't get the words out. And the rabbi says, you know, what's going on? He says, I can't say this. How can I thank Hashem for not making us slaves? Look at us. We're slaves to the Nazis. And the rabbi said, you finish that bracha. You have to finish that. You finish that blessing. And you need to say that blessing with even more conviction and more intention than ever before because being a slave is not something that someone can do to you it's a perspective it's a way that you look at your life physically you can be under the nazis control right now but they can't control your inner freedom the freedom that allows you to choose who you will be what you will be in any situation your inner world can be one that maintains freedom no matter what your physical situation is and I found that story so moving and it connects for me to this process that we go through between Pesach, counting the Omer, and Shavuot. When you think about, you know, Pesach, it's physical freedom. We were redeemed from Egypt. But is that really enough? Is that all we need? Like, what do you do when no one else is bossing you around? What do you do when you have freedom? No one is on you telling you, you know, what to do at any given moment. Who do you become? Shavuot is the pinnacle of that process. It's the culmination when we receive the Torah. The Torah goes through the trouble of telling us, not just that Hashem gave us the Torah, but that Israel voluntarily accepted upon themselves. They said, we will, you know, not seven ishma, we will do and we will hear. They voluntarily accepted upon themselves the Torah, accepting upon yourself all these rules and limitations. Doesn't that seem to be the opposite of freedom? But the sages teach us that in fact, it's the ultimate freedom. They point out something cool that the word in Hebrew for engraved is charut. And it sounds almost exactly the same as the word cherut, the word that means freedom. So when the Torah says that the commandments were charut, when they were um, engraved on the luchot, it says don't read that as saying engraved, charut. Read that as saying cherut, that your freedom is on those tablets, right? And when you think about, um, you know, when, when I think about um, people in the world today, right, everyone is so free. We want to be free. Everyone is free. You know, not everyone, but so many people have freed themselves from the shackles of religion, of family and family values, of social norms that, you know, a few generations ago seemed to be universally accepted and are now being rejected. And so great. Good for you. You're free. Now that you're totally free, what do you do with that? For so many people, freedom just leads them to nihilism, to nothingness, to meaninglessness. The Torah is teaching us that physical freedom is not enough, right? When you become free of outside coercion, how do you express your freedom? What do you do? The ultimate expression of freedom is to voluntarily accept upon yourself, to willingly accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven, right? The responsibility to make the world a better place, but first off to make yourself an ever more refined, uplifted, uplifted and uplifting kind and good person. So how does the counting of the Omer connect with that? I was thinking about how for a slave, a slave doesn't ever need to count their time because their time doesn't really have any value. Like what's the point if every day is the same as the last? and you don't get to do anything that you want with your time, what good is it to count time? The Ram says that when we count the Omer, he gives this sort of romantic um, like example of what it is. He says, it's like waiting for your beloved to come back, right? When you miss, you know, let's say your spouse is traveling and you're waiting for them to come back, so you're kind of you know, crossing off the days on the calendar. So he says the Omer is like we're waiting to meet Hashem at Sinai and we're lovingly counting off the days because we know that there's something coming. For a slave, there's no growth or change. So Hashem, like the first lesson that he has to teach Israel when we stop being slaves is the value of time. You count things that are valuable to you. So the first commandment 
in the Torah given to Israel is this month is for you. Count time, right? Count the months. And then when we cross the sea, we start counting days. It's this idea of being aware of time, valuing your time, anticipating that something is going to change. We're not frozen in a time warp. We're constantly setting our eyes on a goal, on growth, on moving forward to who we could potentially develop ourselves to be. Um, and so this is embodied in, this is even embodied, I think, in the different um, sacrifices that we bring um, in this time. On Passover, we bring a barley offering. Barley is traditionally the food that you give animals, right? It was, that was like considered feed for, for the cattle, right? Animals, every day is the same. Their time, they don't value their time. They just want to survive. But on Shavuot, we bring a wheat offering. Wheat is traditionally considered to be human food. It's like we go through a process of being closer to animals who just care you know, for their physical existence and survival to being true humans that are unique in our ability to try to grow, to want to learn, to develop, to take the, <clears throat> the time that Hashem has given us on earth and make something of ourselves. So there are so many facets, facets in this time of growth and that growth is fundamentally connected to our ability to be deserving of, you know, of the land of Israel because the land of Israel doesn't tolerate people with a slave mentality. The land of Israel, it, it pushes us because, you know, in the land, Hashem always has his eyes on us. It pushes us, you know, to, to, to grow even more. And, you know, through Hashem's hashgachah, through Hashem's providence, look how cool the Jewish calendar turned out. We start with Pesach, where we get our physical freedom. Then we have Israel Independence Day, where we thank Hashem for giving us, you know, uh, just a place, you know, a place to be, you know, safe from the exile. And then we have Jerusalem Day where it's not just, you know, our survival, but we thank Hashem for redeeming our holy places, giving us the chance to go to Jerusalem, to Hebron, to Beit Lechem, and, and, and you know, feel Hashem's closeness in these, in these holy places. And then we peek out on Shavuot where we get to, you know, the, the, the climax of all of this and voluntarily accept upon ourselves Hashem's guidance in every single facet of our lives. And it's like Hashem set this up so we could count our way through this process every year to orient ourselves you know, properly in our lives. So I bless all of us that we merit to move through this time as an internal liberation and count our way through personal and collective growth to our ultimate redemption. Bye guys. Have a great week. Thank you, Tehila. That was Beautiful. I am so lucky. We're all so fortunate to have you. And so thank you for those insights. And to see that the sages of Israel already then said, ah, oh, inheriting the land, the redemption, it's all going to happen through this counting process. And we're just about to celebrate really the greatest moment in probably 2000 years of the establishment of the state of Israel, Independence Day, Jerusalem Day. It's like all apart. It's all encoded in the Torah. But this process of counting... It's about freedom to transformation, to become who we want to be, to change and to grow from the animal that has no free will, that's just sort of living in a cycle, to the wheat, to the human, to the potential of who we could be. It's like to work on ourselves individually. And, you know, it's like, and at the same time, this is all a process of redemption on a national level where Mashiach's energy is like in the air where this just isn't about me and my own personal relationship with God. Something's unfolding here that's on a global scale. And it's like, as we elevate ourselves, we lift up everyone around us. And who knows what impact the Land of Israel Fellowship is having on Israel as a nation in this land. Like our farm that we're building now, so many people came. They were filled with light and then sent back into the land. I mean, it's like a remarkable to think. We're like a light factory. We're like cranking out the light here at the Arugot farm. People come in, they get filled with light and we send them off on their way. Our fellowship somehow is just like filling Israel with light. And through our own personal transformation, we're elevating all of the people around us. And think about that. It's like as Israel rises from the ashes, Israel is going to take the whole world with her. And all of it, though, starts inside us, just inside this little fellowship as all of us are trying to grow closer to Hashem, grow closer to who we should be. It's like each person in their own lives, in their own families, the counting of the Omer is a personal counting. Every kid needs to count. Every adult needs to count. Every person needs to count. And everyone counts on their own. And that's a, it's like a spiritual practice. And so, you know, Tehillah and Ari spoke about, you know, transforming the physical, the dry bones, 
into a holy life. Ezekiel's visions of the dry bones coming together and then being filled with God's spirit. So the Torah is a map for living. It is a living guide. It's not a book. That's the word Bible means book. That's such a bad translation for the Torah. It's a living guide for how to live. And so walking by this map, we're on a journey to Sinai toward revelation. What does the word revelation mean? It means something that already exists and it's being revealed. It's being revealed to you. And it's the same exact word in Hebrew. Can we put that up on the screen? The word in Hebrew, megale, means to reveal. There's something like behind a curtain up. I've revealed what's behind curtain number one. That's megale. Hit galut is revelation, divine revelation, any kind of revelation. It's just revealing what already exists. And that's why also in Hebrew, the word discovery is gilui. You know, like when Einstein discovered the theory of relativity, he didn't invent anything. Nothing new was created. He just discovered what already existed, just the truth of reality. That's revelation in science. But I want to talk about the spiritual mechanics, what revelation means, um, just for a moment to bring us to the heart of the matter. It's like, you know, Genesis describes human beings as being created in the image of God. And you know, the account is that God breathed life into us, an image. It's like an image of him giving from his depths, from his essence, breathing his spirit into us. That breath, nishima, breath in Hebrew, is the same word as nishama, the same word as our soul. It's like the biblical vision of men and women is that we're truly a reflection of God in this world. Like it's our souls are an aspect of him, a spark of his essence. And the entire journey of life guided by the Torah is to express that soul in the world, to reveal it in the world. And when we reveal and manifest our soul in the world, we become closer to our true selves. And in that way, we become closer to our creator. It's like we're born with divine potential. We're born as a tselem Elohim, as an image of God, as a reflection of God. We have like this amazing potential inside of us, but not everyone is expressed as an image of God in the world. It's like we have a chance to make the journey from Egypt of where we are now to the best version of ourselves in the world to reveal what innately exists inside us. It's a divine potential that's in us. And when we walk in the light and we... <sighs> We feel happy. We feel blessing in our lives. We feel alive. We feel like all the circuits are firing. It's like we're plugged in. And the more we reveal our soul, the more we reveal the love, the light that exists inside us. It's revelation. We become vehicles of revelation. That's what Sinai represents to us on a personal level. It's our revelation in the world. But what does that look like practically? How do we start down that path in our own lives? So the Torah says the first step to rise above the currents and chaos of the world, to redirect our lives, to reveal the best aspects of ourself in the world, to manifest those, to reveal those, stop, count, reflect. Just by doing that, just by stopping and counting the days, don't let the days blur into each other, from Passover until Shavuot every day, stop and count. That's the first step. It's like you rise up above the world. You stop the domino effect in your life. And in the act of reflection, you become a little bit more of a master of your own fate. You move away from the life of reaction to living a life of like a proactive life. And the first step, according to the Torah, is to start counting or start tracking. Maybe that's a good way to think of it. Start tracking your days. And the science on this issue, I mean, today it's crystal clear. Um, people who track their progress perform better than people who don't. Um, you know, just by stepping on the scale and tracking your weight, people tend to keep off weight or lose weight more than people that are just living their lives kind of oblivious to it just by stepping on the scale. You don't need to diet. You don't need to exercise. Just the act of tracking your weight already makes you um, more aware, makes you better, makes you just think about it. It's in your mind. Tracking somehow makes you better. 
And that's true for weight, but that's also true for anything that you track. Your finances, your marriage, your children, just by tracking what happened that day, you become better. And so think about the people of Israel. They're on their way to Sinai. They were on their way to the promised land. I mean, could there be a more lofty goal? <laughs> could there be a more meaningful pursuit? I mean, for us, that journey represents our loftiest goals, our most meaningful pursuits in life, whatever we really want to succeed at. And on that journey toward that project that we're working on in life, it's like you have an amazing goal ahead of you. It's challenging. It's meaningful. It's doable. It's like maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your studies. Whatever it is. What's, that's your Mount Sinai. And on the way to that goal, you have to appreciate every day. Track your days. That's the first guidance of the Torah. Count them. The Torah is telling us, don't get lost in just the goal. Don't get lost at Sinai of like, what's going to be with the end process of this thing? No, no, no. Every day toward your amazing, lofty, ambitious, wonderful goal, don't get lost in chasing the future. And so I just was listening to Dr. Emma Sapala. <laughs> She's the head of the Stanford University Center for the Study of Compassion and Altruism. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> and her life's work has been to study the science of human giving and human achievement. And in the first chapter of her book called The Happiness Track, she says there's a science to happiness and well-being that produces success and meaning in people's lives. There's just ways to do it, good ways to do it, and bad ways to do it. And lo and behold, the first chapter of her book says, stop chasing the future. On your way to fulfilling your mission, whatever your mission is, control your mind to track every day along the way. There's no better way to achieve, to create motivation and happiness in your life's project than actually tracking your days. It's like, you know, the ancient saying, carpe diem, seize the day. I loved that saying in high school. I had never heard of like a, like a, a, like a saying like that before. I was like, wow, I love that saying. But later I heard that seize the day is actually a poor translation for carpe diem. It's actually more like pluck the day. Like you don't need to seize the day or grab the day. You like pluck it like a ripe fruit. You want to taste from the tree of life? Just you need to pluck the day and then taste of it once a day to track your day every day on the way to achieving your goal. And I think that that's just amazing that the newest scientific studies in the top universities of the world bring us to the very same conclusion that the Torah points us to written 3,000 years ago. It's like the deep wisdom and understanding of the spirit of man. The Torah guides us. Count your days. That's the optimal way to live, to grow and to flourish. But there's more here to counting the Omer. It's not just about tracking your days. Here the Torah is telling us, count our days, but the days are called counting the Omer. And so the first question is, what's an Omer? I mean, we were, I just got this question right now on the chat. What's an Omer? It's like, we're counting the Omer. What is that? Sharon asked, like, I don't know, what's an Omer? And then they just, I mean, the truth is every Hebrew word, if you don't know Hebrew, is kind of a question. But the truth is a lot of Jews are like, what is the Omer again? What is that? That's not a normal word. It's not like a Hebrew word that's used ever. It's a biblical word. And so let's explore what that word is. The Omer is only mentioned twice in the whole Torah. It's mentioned about the counting of the Omer, and it's mentioned one more time in the book of Exodus in chapter 16. Can we get it up on the screen? It's about the manna from heaven. Look what it says. Hashem said to Moses, behold, I shall rain down for you food from the heaven. Let the people go out and pick each day's portion on its day. This is the thing that Hashem has commanded. Gather it for every man according to what he eats. An Omer per person. Omer lagul golet. So here, the Omer isn't actually a thing. It's a measurement. <laughs> it's like a kilo or a pound. It's like an omer is a measurement of the manna. So we're saying counting the omer, it's like we're counting the kilos. <laughs> we're counting the pounds. We're counting a biblical measurement. So the people of Israel collected a very specific amount of manna, an omer of manna, 
And now we're called to count the Omer and bring an Omer offering. It's like barley offering in Passover, wheat offering an Omer on Shavuot. So obviously there's only two times the Omer is mentioned. These two issues are absolutely intertwined. So we have to look a little bit deeper. What's going on here? And so the sages of Israel, they pick up on this, obviously, and they give us this beautiful midrash connecting the manna and the omer. Look at what this ancient midrash says. Rabbi Berachia says, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Moses, go and tell Israel, when I would give you the manna, I would give you an omer for each and every one of you, as it says, an omer per person. But now that you are giving me the omer, I'm only asking for one omer from all of you. And so we see the text here, it's like connecting the counting of the Omer toward the Sinai revelation and the manna from heaven. And in case we missed it, <laughs> the sages of Israel, they make the connection for us. And they're telling us, God is telling us, listen, these two things, they're connected. Just like I gave you one Omer per person, in some sort of commemoration, you bring just one Omer from all of Israel to me in the temple. And we're going to commemorate that. And so what is that about? So like, what is the connection between the manna and the counting of the Omer? But before we answer that question, I want to answer a question that I received from a bunch of fellowship members. A Dorothea from Germany just asked it right now about the counting of the Omer. It's like, why do we start the counting of the Omer after the first day of Yom Tov, the first day of the holiday of Passover, when the verse explicitly says that we should count it after the Sabbath? So we should have like waited for like Shabbat to have like come in the middle of the week and then after the Shabbat start counting the Omer. But the Jewish tradition is to count it from the end of the first holiday, from the first Yom Tov. Why does it say that? I mean, look at Leviticus 23 again. Look at what it says. You shall count for yourselves from the morrow of the Sabbath, from the day when you bring the Omer of the waving seven complete weeks. I mean, it says it right there, the morrow of the Sabbath. It doesn't say from the morrow of the holiday. Why does it say that? Why and then why aren't we doing that? And so this was a huge argument between the Karaites and the Pharisees. And many people who love the Bible today, they don't really know what to make of that Jewish tradition counting from the first day of the holiday. And it's like the first day of Yom Tov, like, why are we doing that and not counting it after the Shabbat that happens to fall out in the seven-day holiday? And so I want to give two answers to that question that just are really important that you should know. So several times in the Bible, the feasts are referred to as a Shabbat. The holiday themselves are called a Shabbat. So because the same laws of the Sabbath, of rest, of celebration, apply to those holidays, like the biblical feasts are not only called Shabbat, but sometimes they're Shabbat-like days that are marked in time on the biblical calendar. Here's just an example from Leviticus chapter 16. Shabbat, Shabbaton, Hilachem, v'initem et nafshotechem chukat olam. It will be for you a Sabbath, a Shabbaton, and you will afflict your souls as an eternal ordinance. Afflict your souls. You'll fast on that day. This is talking about Yom Kippur on Leviticus chapter 16. So Yom Kippur is called a Shabbat. So sometimes the holidays themselves, there's no word Yom Tov in the Torah. So it's called a Chag or it's called a Shabbat. And so the people of Israel understood that to mean, ah, the Shabbat of the holiday is the actual first day of the holiday. That is the Sabbath in the calendar. So what does that mean? Let's look a little bit deeper. There's something deeper here. And in my opinion, the knockout argument against the Karaites is like we've already seen that the Torah and the Omer are the only two times that they're referred to as the manna and the counting of the Omer. So what's going after that? And we, the Omer um, starts counting right after the Passover offering, right after the first day that we celebrate Passover, we bring the Korban, we have a Leil HaSeder, we're eating it. After that day, we start counting the Omer. And somehow that's interconnected with the manna. So now look at this. You have to find this out because it's another key to the puzzle. And it's the second answer, but it can only be found in the book of Joshua. So just quickly open up the book of Joshua in chapter 5. Here, the children of Israel encamped at Gilgal and performed the Passover offering on the 14th day of the month in the evening in the plains of Jericho. They ate from the grain of the land on the day after the Passover offering, matzot and roasted grain, on this very day. The manna stopped the following day when they ate from the grain of the land. 
there was no longer any manna for the children of Israel. They ate from the grain of the land of Canaan that year. And so here we see something marvelous. In the Torah, during the generation that lived through the Exodus and died in the desert, we have the manna and the counting of the Omer interconnected. But then in the next generation, the generation that enters into the land of Israel, we look at the day after Passover, the manna stops falling. And right then we start counting in the Omer. Like those two things are so interconnected. That's what we're talking about. Practically, when did this happen? Not after the Shabbat in the middle of Passover, but right after the first day of Passover, the manna stopped falling in the book of Joshua. And right then the counting of the Omer begins because those two things are absolutely interconnected. So, and that's why we've been counting this way for so many generations. Now I found another Midrash beyond that one that Tehillah mentioned, that helps us connect the dots between the manna, the counting of the Omer, and Joshua entering into the land to inherit the land of Israel. Here's what it says in Vayikra Rabbah. What was the merit that allowed Israel to inherit the land of Israel? It was in the merit of the mitzvah of the Omer. For it says, when you come into the land, thus Moses warns Israel and tells them, when you come into the land and you reap your harvest, you must bring the Omer offering. So when you reach your goal, you reap your harvest, bring the Omer offering, just as Hashem provided manna from heaven. Don't forget, he is the one providing your food now. The counting of the Omer is celebration of appreciation and of gratitude. It's like first we celebrate and bless every day on this journey. And all of us are on a journey toward the good. All of us are fumbling in our own ways, striving to be better. And our dream would be to become the best version of ourselves. And every day in that pursuit to really express the godly soul that's in us, that divine potential within us to really manifest our destiny in the world, that's a good day. Even if we fumble and even if we fall, as long as we're still on that journey and we fall down and we get up, that's a good day because we're still on God's path. We're still walking in the light, even if we're fumbling through the dark. And you know, you know, here's something that science hasn't really discovered yet. Um, it's about our relationship with God. You know, the secret of the Omer offering in the gateway to opening up the valves of blessing in our lives. It's like when we need something, when we're in a bind, when things are hard, prayers come really naturally. When we lived in the desert and we relied completely on the manna from heaven, it's really easy and natural to pray that, oh gosh, please bring us food for tomorrow. But when we enter into the land of Israel and we start getting a salary from our companies or we have to start working the land, the book of Joshua tells us, listen, there's no more manna for the children of Israel. They ate from the grain of the land of Canaan. It's not exactly manna from heaven anymore. I mean, we got to be smart now. We got to work hard. We need drip irrigation technology in Israel. We need to work the land. Hey, maybe it's our cyber technology. Maybe it's the Iron Dome. Maybe it's the might of the IDF that shields Israel from her enemies. Hashem is telling us through the Torah here, remember, just like I gave you an Omer of manna, each person exactly what he needed. I'm still providing for you today. Who gave you the inspiration to create those technologies? Who gave you the strength and motivation and energy to work hard at your goals? Who gave you the dreams that are in your mind? Who gave you the rain in its time? It's like in Israel, we've become partners in creation, in creating miracles together with God. We're not the masters of creation. We're partners in creation with him. And you know, when you need something, it's easy to pray. When you're satisfied and you have what you need, that's when you're commanded to bless and thank God for our success. Gratitude and appreciation are the keys to inherit the land of Israel. And the Omer is the key to remember our daily blessings and who provides those blessings. It's like Tal Ben Shachar, the Israeli Harvard professor who taught the most popular class in Harvard on positive psychology. He says, the thing in life that engenders more happiness and fulfillment than anything else, it's not confidence or wealth or success. Thinking how great you are doesn't really help. The thing that engenders the most happiness is gratitude. More than anything else, being thankful and appreciative is what aligns humans 
and fills them with joy. That's like an amazing design. It's like human beings were designed to be thankful, to say thank you. It's like our bodies and brains were somehow wired to say thank you. The gratitude, the more gratitude, the more happiness. It's like, what do scientists think here? Who exactly are humans supposed to thank when they say thank you? Who is the you there? It's like, you can live ignoring your creator. You can take credit for your success, but to open the gates of joy and blessing in your life, the counting every day is counting our blessings every day and thanking God for every single one of them. And so fellowship, just want to thank you. <laughs> It's like we started this together the Sunday after Shavuot. We're approaching a year together now. We've grown. We've built. It's like you new members. Wow, man, you got a lot to catch up on. <laughs> but Ari and I and Tehila are always here for you. Any questions you have about any session, you can always reach out to us on WhatsApp, on emails. You know, Shavuot is the holiday of King David's birthday. The holiday of the giving of the Torah is when we began our journey together. And we are working on something so exciting. It's right in the works. But until then, don't get lost in chasing the future. Count your blessings every day. If Passover is freedom and Sukkot is happiness and Shavuot is revelation, counting the Omer up to Shavuot is an appointed time of gratitude and blessing. And you should know that you are blessed from Zion. Thank you, my friends. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichuneka, Isa Adonai panav elecha, v'yasem lecha shalom. Shalom, my friends. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.